Welcome to Second Win, the podcast where we uncover the stories, methods, and modalities of women and men who have found their purpose while walking this earth. Sometimes they found their second win by accident, sometimes by hardship, and sometimes by intent. There is always something to learn from others and really isn't finding our own purpose what we are all looking for. I know I am. And that's why I'm hosting this very podcast. My name is Wendy Charles McGuire. Thank you for listening and let's get to it. Welcome Second Winders. I have with us today Janine Valentine. You may remember her from her episode, which was March 1st, 2021. And the title of that was, You Cannot Reach the Highest of Highs Without Feeling the Lowest of Lows. And Janine in that episode had shared some pretty interesting things of her life and how it had kind of come to a head where she remembered saying on the podcast, she said on the podcast that someone asked her what she would like for dinner and she really didn't know. She had no idea what she wanted. She had no idea what it liked. It was like a, the light bulb went off and she's like, I don't, I don't even know who I am. I don't even know what I like. I don't even know what I can do. Nothing. And then she kind of climbed out of that through a series of scary scenarios where she threw herself into her fears, overcame them, built her business and ended up going out and getting clients. And then by the time we were talking, had a waiting list for people who wanted to work with her. And she also refound her own gift for writing and poetry. And she shared a poem with us on that podcast. I suggest you listen to it. It's called, I would think it's called Heights, right? It was, yeah, it's it's such an amazing poem and and really anyone listening can resonate. It resonates with with anyone listening. But I said to, I saw that through all the social media that Janine had written a book and, you know, I'm like, oh, she wrote a book about what we talked about on the episode. But no, that is not it at all. Janine had another life altering experience where she had to jump into her fear again, overcome. And then like magic, she had this download that she needed to write a book. And very quickly, she produced this book that is getting really good reviews all over. And hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, you'll be able to order it, get it, and read it. And I wanted to have her on for one reason, but then found out that this book that I thought it was isn't, and it's even better than I possibly could have imagined. And the name of the book is Both Things Are True, A Journey from Fearing Trust to Trusting Fear. So Janine, thank you so much for coming back on. Just love you and what you do and how you do. It's unselfish and you're great. So I want to I hear this story because I don't really even know it. And let's go. Let's get right into it. Because you said there was a moment when it all clicked. And I think that was when you were at the beach, right? And then we can go back to the story of why you were on this beach to begin yeah, with. Exactly. <laughs> so it actually is all related, you know, and I think we repeat lessons, but it isn't like on the flat plane. We repeat lessons in a, a spiral upward. So this big thing that happened, sometimes you get to choose to face your fears by doing things like starting a business and other times you don't get a choice, right? It just happens to you. So this was that. Right. <laughs> 
Right. Yeah. So the basic premise is that I went on this ridiculously bougie vacation with with 11 friends. There were 12 of us. We were on a, a 50 meter yacht out in the middle of the Indian Ocean in the Maldives. And I mean, I was getting a massage every day. It was like ridiculous. I've never had a vacation like this. <laughs> so it was spectacular. And then so this was just last September, so September of 2021. So we'd been in the pandemic. We'd had to do all the testing to go on vacation, but things were opening back up. The vaccine was in place, you know, that's just kind of where we were. But it was required that we do a PCR test on board the boat before we were allowed to fly home. And so we all took our tests. Now, I had only been on this boat and it was only 40 guests and then the staff and crew there. And I tested positive. I was the only one in our group of 12 that tested positive. There was one other woman on the boat, another guest from Russia who also tested positive. My roommate, who had slept literally like just this far apart from me, did not get it. Her husband, the Russian woman's husband, didn't get it. But they didn't have a plan. It had never happened before. And the boat manager told me he had no idea what would happen to me when I left that boat. So he was sending a crew member with us to Hulu Male, Mali City, the main island in the Maldives. And we were going to retest in the hopes that it was a positive. And he was going to get us to the clinic and to interpret because it's a very conservative Islamic island. And so, you know, a woman going by herself would have been challenging in and of itself, but there was also a big language barrier. So he went with us, got us to the clinic. We were put in this little room with no windows. It was a bed and just a little bit of walking room around it. A TV playing something that was like Indian soap operas with, you know, subtitles. And we were there for six and a half hours waiting for the results. And when he came back with the results, oh my God, and told me I was positive. My roommate had been allowed to go with me. The rest of my friends were waiting to fly home. So they were disembarking the boat in a different way. I was whisked off the boat. I didn't get to say goodbye to most of my friends. And so, my roommate was with me and now we had 20 minutes till she needed to leave to get to the airport to meet up with everybody else to fly out. And I was hoping you were with her, but then I got the second positive test. And our interpreter also had to get back to the boat because they had another round of guests coming for the next week. So I was about to lose everybody. I had 20 minutes to find a place to stay because he told me, we don't have a place for you to stay. We don't have a plan. You're going to need to book a hotel, but don't book a tourist hotel because they won't let you stay without proof that you're negative. So you're going to need to go to, he kind of showed me this place on the map, somewhere where like the people that work in the tourist industry mostly stay, book it. If they ask you, you're going to need to lie and tell them you're negative because we have no place for you to stay. So I booked this 14 day stay and he put me in a cab and I went off to this little like. It was like a hostel hotel, kind of. I had my own room, my own bathroom. It was actually, you know, pretty decent compared to the holding room I'd just been in. <laughs> so, but there were just all these problems mm -hmm. that came there. Yeah. So it's a closed currency and I had very little cash on me and the cash, I had about $90, but most of that was unusable in their culture. They would hold it up and show you the little micro tears or if there was ink on it or if it was crumpled they wouldn't accept it. They would kind of shame you like you were trying to pass off bad currency, fraudulent currency. So once I discerned what was usable, I realized I had $38. And everywhere I tried to use my credit card, they shook their head, no, cash. 
cash. So this was Saturday afternoon. I checked in. We hadn't eaten all day. I picked this room because it said it had room service and a terrace. And I thought, well, I'm going to be quarantined. I'll be able to be outside. I'll be able to have food and water delivered. And so that was what I thought I was doing. <laughs> so I, I checked in. I ordered room service. They brought it to me. I asked them to put it on my room. No. <laughs> I handed my credit card. No. Cash. Bottom just dropped out. I was like, oh, no. No, no, no. I can't do this. And I was like, kept trying to hand him my card. No. So I tried to hand him some of the cash that hadn't worked at the last place. And he, no, he did the same thing. I knew. I, so I spent 10 of my $38 to pay for that meal and knew that I could not order room service again. And the terrace that I had turned out to be a shared terrace. So there was one other room that used that terrace. So if there was anybody staying in the other room, then I wouldn't be able to be out on the terrace and quarantine. Sorry, just those my earrings falling off. <laughs> I'm going to have to just go without it. So the terrace was going to be a part-time option. So, and then the room was full of bugs. I was getting bug bites all over me. There were visible big beetles and small little ants and there's all this stuff. So the next morning I woke up symptomatic and no food or water. So I put on two masks. I was, my main symptom was dizzy. It's very hard. I'd go down 52 steps of a spiral staircase and I had to find a little market and I leaned in and held my credit card up to see if they would take it. And the guy nodded and held up his machine. And so it was like a little gas station oh, market God. here. Well, I mean, it wasn't a gas station. It was their market, but it, that's what it reminded me of. And so in my room, I had a coffee mug and a little, like a literal teaspoon. You know how people sometimes collect little baby teaspoons. I had one of those, no microwave or fridge. So this is what I was working with. I didn't have a knife. I didn't have you know, plates or napkins or anything like that. So I bought a jar of peanut butter, four jars of tuna fish that had pop tops, one giant carrot, a small box of coconut milk, a little bag of muesli, like granola cereal, and four large bottles of water because it was all I could carry. And I made it back to my room, collapsed on my bed and was unable to leave again for five days. I was too sick. And so I was rationing. You're missing a part that you told me. You're missing a part about the, didn't you have to climb a lot of steps? Yeah, I, I said that when I was thinking about room. going down, that I had to go down 52 spiral stairs. Yep. And so then I had to carry that stuff back up those stairs, 52 steps. Yep. And the phone in my room didn't work. Like the hardline telephone to the front desk didn't work. So if I needed anything, I would have to be able to make it down those stairs. And no one knew where I was. And no one knew I was sick. So it was like, what if I get really, really sick? How do I get medical care? I'm going to have to be able to get myself down those stairs to get medical care. And it's going to have to be serious enough that I risk outing myself because I won't be allowed to stay here anymore. So I, I knew that it would have to be bad enough that I probably wouldn't be able to get myself down the stairs, you know? So it was, it was pretty horrifying, honestly. And Rationing water when you're sick is scary. I knew I needed to be hydrating, but I couldn't. What's going through your head during this time? Like what? You're by yourself. What, what are you thinking? I was crying a lot. I was crying a lot. I was feeling very abandoned. I was spending a lot of time thinking about 
aloneness. Like I thought, we talked about this in the last session, you know, a year and a half ago that I had to learn to enjoy my own company and learn to be alone. And I really thought in all these years that I had practiced that, that I'd actually come to enjoy being alone. But this was such a different kind of alone because there was no choice in it. I couldn't choose, okay, that's enough of that. I want to talk to somebody now. I couldn't even talk to anybody. Like I, there was no one to talk to. And even when I did see a person, they couldn't speak my language. And my friends and family, we had an 11-hour time difference. So I was asleep when they were awake and vice versa. So there was this little window of time early in the morning and late at night. We could use WhatsApp because my phone carrier didn't have Maldivian service, even for a charge. So I had no phone service on my cell, but I had WhatsApp. And so we were able to call and text through that app. And so I just had these little windows where I could touch in and say, yeah, I'm okay. I started kind of living for those, you know? But yeah, I started journaling, trying to keep track of, there was a lot. I mean, those days were, I mean, A, I was really sick and I slept a lot. And B, I was trying to juggle a lot. Like I have two dogs and I had a pet sitter at home who had thought she was going home, but now I needed her to stay two more weeks. So I, I had to work that out. And I still have my own business. I run my own business and thank God I have assistants now. And I had two assistants that were helping and So, but I needed to let them and my clients know, like, you guys are still kind of on your own. I can help a little when I'm feeling better, but an 11 hour time difference means 24 hours between emails at the time they get it and respond and I get it. (laughs) Right. So there was just all this logistical stuff that was happening too, when you realize you're going to be gone a month and you thought you were only going to be gone two weeks. Right. So yeah, it was a lot those first few days. But things turned around. There, there was a lot that changed. So two quick sip of water and Yeah. So let's dive into well, the water, the water situation. Yeah. So on day six, I think it was, I was well enough to make it down those stairs and replenish my food and water. And on my way back from the market, there was a man who owned the restaurant next door that was the room service. And that's why I couldn't put it on my room tab. It was a separate restaurant. But I was definitely the only girl that looked like me there, the only woman not in a burqa. And so I stood out and he had pretty good English. He was from Bangladesh and he asked me why I wasn't ordering food. And I told him, you won't, you only take cash. I don't have enough cash and I'm here for a long time. And he asked how long. And when I told him, he looked at me, he goes, I will take your credit card. And he walked with me back to my hotel. And there were two young men in their 20s that worked 12 hour shifts at the little hotel. So it was only the two men. They did everything there. And he told them, he stood there and he told them, I'm taking her credit card. I'm authorizing it. I ordered two meals. Who's so hungry? (laughs) I ordered two meals and some water. And they brought it up to my room for me later. So we solved that problem. And then I decided I was going to break quarantine for a second reason. And I was going to, I just needed, I needed to be out of my room, not trying to get food and water, right? I just needed to go sit outside. And there was someone in my, the room next door, Terrace wasn't a great option. And so the beach directly across the street was this public beach. And I had watched out my window during the last few days and noticed that it was empty all day because it was hot. (laughs) 
So the local came out at sunset. You know, they came out in the evenings and enjoyed the beach. So I knew it would be empty. So I got dressed and went over there. And as soon as I walked through this grove of trees onto the beach, there was this log. There was just, it literally had like sunlight on it, like rays, like a beacon. And I knew that was for me. I was like, I am going to sit here and I'm going to have conversations with the universe here and talk. I started using the sea as my metaphor for what I was going through. And just, I shouted at the sea and I talked and I prayed and there was just so much happening there. But I ended up using that log as my like little sacred space to work through all my head stuff, right? So it wasn't that same day, but on day eight, a couple days later, I went down to the beach. And this is what you were talking about is there was a group of women in the middle of the day. This is the first time I'd seen people there in the day. And there were probably 15, 20 women and they were in still in their full burkas and they wear the black gloves and the shoes and it's just their eyes showing and they were all swimming in the ocean and they all had foam noodles to like support them in the water. And it occurred to me, well, with all that weight on and it gets wet, like they're probably in serious, you know, the risk of drowning if they don't have something to hold on to because that would just be so heavy. Are they swimming with the shoes? Yeah. Are they swimming with the shoes as well? Women on the, on the sand and I could see a couple of them were barefoot or with socks but some of them still had their shoes on. So I think it just varied. There was one man wow. with them and because it wouldn't, they wouldn't, I don't think it would have been appropriate for a man not to be with them, but he was sitting on the beach in the shade a little ways back, but he was watching them pretty closely. At one point I thought they might be having a swim lesson because some of them were like laying on the sand in the shallow, shallowest part of the surf and kicking. They still had their noodles, but they were kicking like, like we would see kids do on the side of the pool. But I don't know. I think they might have just been playing where it felt more safe in the shallower water, which again is a beautiful metaphor. <laughs> yes. So so it was this moment. It was this moment that I reflected back to even all the things we talked about in our first interview together. Just how I have all these same layers on that my burqa isn't a physical black cloth but that I have all those layers of other people's expectations of me, of my own expectations of me, of just wanting to suppress and hide and to be the same as everyone else, to look the same from the outside, to not be perceived as, as too different, right? And so it's, I mean, that's a lot of the reasons women wear burkas is the anonymity, to be more homogenous, so that you know, they won't be noticeable, right? So it's just really interesting. Like, I think we all, to some degree, are doing this. And it comes back to that suppression. Whereas I realized after my divorce that I had been suppressed. And I was largely blaming that. I was taking, I was owning my role in that, but I was blaming it on, you know, my circumstances and the people I was around and that sort of thing. But I realized while I'd come out of my shell and was expressing myself and had started this business and even started writing, there was still stuff that I was like holding tight inside of my body way down. And this, this, what I call my colossal timeout (laughs) definitely was making me deal with those. It turns out didn't trust myself 
And I had never learned how to trust myself. And while I'm a very competent woman and had proved that in many areas of my life, I still felt like the story in my head was I had great people around me. I had great resources. When I made a big decision, I could talk about that with other women who were business owners or my close friends who knew me really well. And we would sort of, you know, validate one another. And then I would be comforted to move forward. But you strip all that away. And it's just you and no one to like reflect back to you if what you're doing is good or bad or right or wrong or safe, not safe. Like it's just all you and the only ideas are going to come from you. The only resources are going to come from your willingness to open up and seek them, you know, your mindset, all of it. So I just, I looked at these women and I was like identifying with them and imagine swimming, swimming with them. And I imagined just letting my burqa float off down to the floor of the sea. And I could feel it. I could feel the water against my skin differently. I could feel like vulnerable and I felt super visible, but also smaller. Like, and, but the biggest word that rose up for me was buoyant. I felt buoyant and it was like really powerful to just realize I'm, 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 wearing this weight and I don't need to. And so that's where the work kind of began was there with that turning point. It was like, okay, how do I carry this home with me? How do I dig in and be enough inside? How do I stop suppressing myself? How do I face this giant fear of mine of being truly alone, you know, and realize like I'm enough. I'm not alone. I'm enough. I have myself and I have my higher power. And then when you look at all the people, look at this restaurant owner, you know, I was sourced. I had food and water right there, you know, right when I needed it. And it was like that the whole trip. I had these amazing, it was all men. I had no interactions with women while I was there, but I had these amazing men that took beautiful care of me and they didn't even know. They didn't know I was sick. They didn't know what they were offering me. Right. But they did exactly the right things. Yeah. So what do you think you, what do you, can you now look back? Is there something you can attribute that to? Like, you know, I've talked to different people who said, yeah. And then the answer came right when I asked, or that door opened right when the window closed, or do you know what I mean? And everybody has their own idea of why that was the case. Do you have an idea of why things worked when they needed to for you? I mean, it was about trust. It was when I wasn't frantic. It was, it never resolved itself when I was embodying fear. Never, never once. Ah, so it was like, there you go. Fear consumes and pulls us down, right? And that's kind of the message of my book here. That's why I say from fear and trust to trusting fear. Because, you know, a lot of us fear trust. We don't trust ourselves. We don't trust others. We don't trust God or however we identify our higher power. So we, we all have some sort of trust issue, right? And we're kind of afraid to do that. And then learning to trust fear. So for me, it was like this giant shift of seeing, of trusting that the thing I'm afraid of, that I have no choice but to go through, that there is something extraordinary. There are beautiful gifts inside our fear like extraordinary gifts inside our fear. And so I got to practice 
being present, just being present in my fear. And I realized that when I got really, really present, the fear dissipated because the fear lived in my head. It was, I'm replaying the past, even if it was a minute ago or a day ago, what all the things that had led up to this were terrifying. And if I was reliving those, I was in fear. And if I got even a minute into the future and started doing all the what ifs and how am I going to get my next meal and do I have enough water and how am I going to test to get home and what about my cash and ah, there was so much, right? But if I could just be right here in this very, very minute, I had this moment where I was like, oh my gosh, it is not lost on me how extraordinarily beautiful this beach is. And I would rather be home, right? I would rather be home. But this is an extraordinarily beautiful place. And if I could just be here and feel the sand on my toes and the sun on my skin and breathe, and I'm, I'm actually okay right now. And it's when I start thinking about what's going to happen in a minute or what just happened, then that fear. So it was like this learning to get inside the fear, allow it to be there. I can't negate it. I can't push it down, which is what I had done in the past. I had always tried to talk myself out of my fear, tell myself how irrational it was and try to problem solve and, you know, all those things we do. But then it just pops up. I started referring to it as whack-a-mole is what it felt like. It just kind of found different ways to seep out. The fear is real. And I just I had this moment where I recognized, I felt like my higher power was looking at me and saying, my child, of course you're scared. Of course you're scared. It's okay. I don't mind that you're scared. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have to mean you don't trust yourself or me. Like you're scared. This is freaking scary. Like be scared, but I've got you. And I know that you know I've got you. And so that's where the both things are true. I could hold on to both. I could be terrified and in full trust at the same time. And that it didn't negate one or the other. I didn't need to invalidate any of my emotions. I could just be with them. But it was always when I got into those moments where I could be present and be in trust and leaning more heavily in that direction that the help showed up. And I could, because I was looking for it, I was looking for the good. I was looking for what was going right. And then it would show up. Yeah, I think, I think when you say that, it's like getting the gentleman who owned the restaurant to allow you to use your credit card. You didn't go at him. He just asked you a question. You could have said, well, because you won't take my credit card. I'm like starving to death. You don't understand. And then I have to climb up these stairs and there's a, you could have freaked out on him, right? Like, because you're scared, you're in this place, you don't have anything, you feel like crap and you haven't eaten mm -hmm. like anything substantial per se. And you could have gone at him with the fear leading and you didn't, you just said, well, you were kind of matter of fact, it seems, well, you won't the card won't work and it is what mm -hmm. it is. And that allowed the goodness to come through. I don't know how to say that better. Yeah, it allowed him I'm to not offer, a writer. Like right? he got to just up. offer. Yes. Yeah. He got to feel like he was serving a purpose as well in that moment, probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, there was no mindset to that. I wasn't doing that intentionally, but I think I was very much in acceptance, you know, at the, in that moment, I wasn't angry. I was very much in acceptance and I was carrying bags of some more food and water and, 
I'd made it through and I knew I was going to get healthier from there, not worse. Like I was still sick, but I was better than I had been. So I, I think, yeah, I was just in a different mindset, but yeah, it just allowed him to step up and do that. And he didn't have to do that. I wasn't asking him to do that, but I'm just so grateful. Yeah. 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 And you said you had brought a bunch of journals with you to write your poetry, which I said on the last podcast, oh, you're going to be famous for your poetry. <laughs> you should keep doing that. And you, you're like, yes, I'm doing it. I am doing it. So that's one of the things you wanted to do on this luxurious, luxurious vacation was yes. do some poetry. Mm -hmm. But what ended up happening? Well, I did. I did write some poetry on the boat. In fact, this is really cool. I'll share this with you guys. I don't know if this will show. This is the back of my book. This photo was taken on the boat and it was taken by one of my friends okay. who went with me. I didn't know she took it and I was writing a poem. So I was just sitting there on the boat and I was writing a poem and she just thought I looked so peaceful and beautiful and she snapped this photo. Little did we know. So that was actually, I was, I was calling it at that time, a love letter to the sea. And I was writing this poem to the ocean. And I grew up in Oregon. And so I have like this deep affinity for the sea and a lot of respect for it and have been around it a lot. So I just, there's some beautiful analogies. I'm a water baby. And I just was really leaning into that being out there. So I ended up finishing that poem in quarantine and it shifted. And it's now called I Met Me by the Sea. And so I, you know, use some of what I'd written and reworked some of it and added to it. And that's in the book. And so we end up using that photo on the back, which I just love. I love just how that all worked together. But I had extra journals that I hadn't filled on the boat. And I, that's, I journaled every day. It was how I kept track of everything. It was how I, like, I wrote down my symptoms in there. I wrote down names of people that I had talked to and ideas that occurred to me, like I was still trying to figure out how I was going to get home. I had just missed my flight. I hadn't been able to tell anybody. So was that gone? I needed somebody to help me figure that out. Like, did I need to buy a new thing? Just all this stuff. But I also was journaling all of my emotions and conversations I'd had with the sea when I was sitting on my warrior bench and the things that were occurring to me, the ways people were showing up for me, just even my friends back home. I mean, it just really opened me up to how we can show up for someone in crisis in little ways that like they had no idea what it meant to me, you know, but just like I had, it's still so emotional, but I had just enough room for a yoga mat to like, I could have laid on the floor next to my bed to do yoga, which I love to do. But there were so many bugs in my room that I was not going to lie down. But one of my friends shared her Qigong link with me, which is basically standing up yoga, right? You just do it standing up and it's energy movement. And so I had enough room to do that. And it, it made me, I didn't have energy to do anything that was strenuous, but this was energy movement and it just got my breathing normal. It felt really good. And so that was a really powerful thing to send that to someone, you know, I had other friends that were just like slamming with memes. I had one friend that would get up in the middle of the night to use the restroom. She didn't want to talk. She didn't want to wake herself all the way up, but she was thinking of me. And without fail, she would just text me through WhatsApp. 
just on my way to the restroom, just want you to know I love you. Just thinking about you. Just one little sentence like that, in the, which was the daytime for me. And I was used to not hearing from anyone in the daytime. But I would get these little blips from her. It wasn't a conversation. I didn't really respond because she didn't want to be awake, right? But to just know, you know, that in the middle of someone else's night, that they're still thinking about you. It's just really powerful. So there were just a lot of really beautiful ways that we were able to be community. So it was really good. It was really good. That's amazing. Tell us how you managed to finally get home. What did that look like? A lot of tears. So the airline was amazing. I had, so one of the friends that went with me, I've traveled with her before and I trust her decision-making in terms of travel plans. And so I couldn't call the airline myself. There was not an 800 number usable. And so I messaged her and she called the airline on my behalf from the U.S. and told them what had happened and asked if she could help book my flight home and how much credit they might be willing to extend me and they fully comped me. Like they just gave me the full credit and did not, I mean, they weren't able to resell that seat. So that was so generous on their part. And so she, we just, I decided that we were going to act as if I was going home on that Friday, the two at the 14th day, 14. And so even though I, you know, hadn't tested negative, I was like, well, if I test positive again, like, I can't even think about that. I can't even hold space for that. But if I do, then we'll just have to change the flight. But I need to know I have a flight. I just needed it. And this was just a few days before. I think we were on day 10 or 11 when I had her book it. So I had to go on day 13. So there's, I mean, there's, I can't tell the whole story here, but I had to use some of my precious cash along the way. So that $38 had dwindled to 15 and it was three $5 bills on purpose. I knew that the taxi ride to the clinic was $5 because we'd just taken that to my hotel from, from the clinic. And so I knew for retesting, I was going to spend $5 to get there and five to get back and another five to get to the airport on the next day. And that was the last of my cash. (laughs) Taxi drivers would not take a credit card. The nearest ATM, because I know people are going to ask this, was a 20 minute walk for me. And I wasn't strong enough to make that walk. And it would have been around people. And I really was supposed to be quarantining. I was contagious, you know? So It just wasn't an option for me. So I just had to throw that in there. So I took on Thursday, I took the the taxi to the clinic and tested and came back. So now I have my $5 left and a plane ticket tomorrow. And they tell me they'll get the results at 7.30 Friday morning. So, I mean, that was a long sleepless night. And then I like took a long, you know, time on the beach in the morning and I came up at eight in the morning. I'd like distracted myself in case it was late. And then I go to check and there's nothing. And so I, the doctor calls shortly after and tells me my test results were inconclusive. <laughs> what the hell? I know. I didn't even know that was possible. I'm like, you know, it feels like either it's present or it's not, you know, so wouldn't that be a negative? But no, no, it doesn't work like that. So he told me I needed to get back to the clinic immediately to retest again. I was like, I don't have time. I have a flight out. And my room had been rented to someone else. So I was like, 
I have to take my stuff with me. Oh, no. I have to take my stuff. I started crying. I was like, I'm homeless. I'm out of money and I have no place to stay. I'm going to have to take all of my stuff with me. And he said, we have a, you know, there was a clinic at the airport. So he had me just go to the airport and test there. So I used my last $5 and had everything with me and got the test. And then again, it was going to be another, you know, six, I don't know why it always took six hours, but it did um, to get the results. So I seriously had a panic attack in the airport right after testing. I thought I would go sit by the sea. It was an open air airport. It was pretty cool. Actually, there's no walls once you got through security. So in the area I was in, there was no walls and you could see the sea right across just this little taxi roadway. And so I like sat at this table and I thought, okay, I'll just sit here by the sea. I was thinking, oh, I'm going to be okay. And then it cracked me open instead. It, the connection with the sea, it just like, it was like, no, we're going to feel all the feels right now. And so I just completely lost it. And so I started walking. I was like, I have to move. I have to move. I have to keep my body moving. I didn't want to draw attention. I didn't want anybody to try to help me. And so I started walking and I walked to this. There was this hotel that I recognized the name of because my friends back on the boat, which felt like a year ago, <laughs> but a couple of weeks ago, had all day waste before they flew out. And so they had booked a day pass at this very hotel that was right next to the airport where it was a luxury hotel. It was a resort hotel, you know, very unlike where I had been staying, but it had this lovely pool and they sold day passes. And so my friends had all been there and I recognized the name. So I walked to it and I was a hot mess. That story is really funny in the book. I was a hot mess by the time I got there. And I think they probably discussed whether they should call emergency medical care for me. But I got in the water, I, I tried to calm down, I tried to wait, I couldn't, I couldn't relax into this beautiful place. I just didn't fit there, you know? So I went back and they let me wait in the clinic and my results came back as negative with just minutes left for me. I literally had just enough time to fill out the online form where I put my QR code showing I was negative in and then they called for me to go the, it's different there so the check-in process is is timed you only have a certain amount of time for that plane and everybody on that plane checks in in that time you can't just wander in so we did that so i made it through started texting everybody i'm coming home i'm coming home it was just like this really emotional time and i was like i don't care where i sit <laughs> it's like just get me on the plane and um it was really beautiful because the I flew through Qatar and then I flew into Chicago and then on to Denver, which is where I live. So I'll just, I'll never forget the feeling of when we landed in Chicago and I heard the first English that I'd heard in a very long time. And they came oh, over in the lobby yeah. and they said, welcome to the United States of America. And I burst into tears. I was just like, oh God, yeah, I'm home. I, was, I laughed later. I was like, the guy next to me must have thought I was ultra patriotic. <laughs> but it was, I was like, I could drive home from here. I, I got it. And then when I got to Denver, my whole tribe, they were right there at the top of the escalator. They had signs no and balloons and flowers. And it was just like this big, big, huge hug and pile. And everybody had wondered, wondered who I was. <laughs> but other people were like, what is going on? But it was a very powerful. I mean, they just all came to be there to witness me coming home. And 
Yeah, they had stocked my oh my fridge. They filled my whole apartment with balloons and flowers and champagne and soft things. I there was a deprivation of soft for me. There had been nothing soft, and so like there was it was hot there. It was just a sheet on the bed. The towels were line dried and kind of scratchy. <laughs> there was no toilet paper. There just was nothing. It was a hard tile floor. There was nothing soft. And so when I came home, I had my puppies and these soft blankets. I just couldn't get enough of it. It was interesting. That was one of the things I really, really missed. But And toilet paper. They bought massive Costco-sized couple of them. The whole toileting situation there was very foreign to me as well. It was not a bidet. It was a very different like sprayer thing. It was very, had a huge learning curve, let's just say. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So it oh just was gosh. a lot of just getting naked to use the restroom <laughs> because everything was getting wet. But yeah, so I really, it was funny. Just the things we missed, right? Silverware. I hadn't had silverware. So silverware. Yeah. You only had that little tiny spoon. Right. And I mean, they sent up a fork every time they sent up room service. So it isn't like I didn't have silverware once I got that, but I just didn't have access to anything like a knife to cut things and you know I couldn't peel anything and yeah so just having easy access to all that felt really foreign when I got home yeah that's amazing so so you you're home you probably now you've got to get back into your business because it's been you've been gone obviously so there's got to be some stress there yeah oh my gosh that's right you've been on a whole month at that point so what makes you then say to yourself, because I would imagine, I know when I was sick, just the thought of catching back up, that's all time consuming and getting back into myself and being healthy again, trying to feel healthy again. That's a job in and of itself. And then you decide you're going to write a book. Like, how does that happen? Um, it wasn't a decision. It was a knowing. And I knew it while I was in quarantine. I, there was just, I can't even really, really pinpoint the moment. I have a big sense of humor. And so a lot of what was happening was also funny. And so I remember having this moment because you'll remember my phone room, the phone in my room didn't work to call the front desk. So to order room service, I had to traipse 52 stairs down a spiral staircase, place <laughs> my order, right? And in order to do that, I had right. to put on flip-flops. I had to put on a bra and cover my shoulders and put on a mask, right? This whole prepping thing, get all the way down there, place my order, then come all the way back up and wait for them to deliver it to me because it's room service. And God forbid I carry my own stuff back up. I tried several times. They're like, nope, we got you. And so that I could eat so I could have enough energy to go back down and do it again later. I mean, it just was hilarious. I was grateful. Every step of the way, I was grateful because it was hella better than what I was doing before, right? But I just remember like walking down those stairs at one point, I just burst out laughing. I just could picture them like the made for TV movie of this. Like I was like, what the hell? Like, this is funny, you know? And I just, I kept having those moments where I was the observer, where I could just kind of see. And then I'd have these deeply spiritual moments, some of which I shared. So it was like this, this understanding that I think that there are other people out there. I know that there are other people out there specifically women, but not exclusively women who need to hear this, who will be blessed and helped by just witnessing the messiness of my experience, because I'm not trying to teach anyone how to do anything. I'm just opening the door, right? I'm just like, 
witness this and maybe you'll relate to it. And maybe there's something here that will open you up without you having to like climb into this dark place that I had to go into, you know? So, or maybe when your biggest fear happens to you, you'll remember my story and you'll be able to more quickly look for the beauty behind the fear. You'll be able to look at what am I not trusting? What's working? What's, what is for me in this? And so I just, I just sort of had this knowing that it was going to be a book. And so I just, I didn't have a choice. I was writing. I would wake up in the middle of the night and I was writing. My head was writing. I had to keep notepads everywhere. And I just kept writing. And I, it was interesting because I've, I've never done anything like this. And so I hired this uh, publishing company as like a hybrid so I could self-publish but still have the support of professionals. And so I had a very professional editor and I sent him my, my manuscript and he asked me how many rewrites I'd done before I gave it to him. And I was like, none, isn't that what we do together? <laughs> and he's like, oh no, he was shocked that it was, it was in the shape it was in. It, it was excellent. And it just did not take this way. It came out almost how it is, you know? Yeah. You said also you felt like it, you were yes. channeling. Like the information was just flowing through you, mm -hmm. which is really interesting. Because yeah, I had, to, and you've never had that experience no, before. No, it's a little bit like that when I write poetry. I sort of feel like I get in like the flow of a river. Like if you're in the middle of a river versus on the edges, it's like when I really get into writing, it's like I'm in the middle, and I can, I just am going, and I often don't know where my poetry is taking me. I think I'm writing about one thing, and then when I stop, I'm like, oh, that took a turn. And it's about something else, but it's right. That happens a lot. So that's the closest experience that I've had with that. But this was, my journals were like the foundation and they were raw. They were me. And we kept those in my voice, like a hundred percent. I brought in text messages from WhatsApp verbatim into the book so that you could see kind of how that progressed and what we were, how we were responding to each other. But then I had this beautiful ability to like observe with hindsight from the safety of my home, from, you know, the comfort that I took and for taken for granted and just be able to look back and be like, I was stuck in the micro of it when I was in the moment there. And then I had this macro view pulled back a little bit when I got home and it just, I was changed. I didn't fit in my world anymore. I had previously been this massive planner. Like I just knew I could tell you what was happening two or three weeks from now to the minute almost. I had the inability to look at tomorrow for a very long time. I didn't, I couldn't hold it in my head. I did not know what was tomorrow. And I had this need to listen to my body and to respond. And I was used to working crazy, you know, 14 hour days and ignoring my body, being absent to my needs and just pushing through. And I wasn't capable of that anymore. He was like, Nope, I need to move my body. I need nourishment. I need water. I was like really aware of what I needed and needing to respond to it. So I was writing about this. I was, so the last part of the book is about assimilation. It's about what coming home looks like and how, when you've had something that profoundly changes you, and then you try to fit back into your world, you don't, and you're grateful you don't, but you see things in a big, different way, you know? So yeah, I just wrote about all of that as well. What would you say, 
I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's so many things, but if there was, you had to pick one thing that changed the most for you, what would it be? One thing is hard. Yeah. Like what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, I guess it all does come back to trusting myself. It really does. It's because even like the planning shows a little bit of a lack of trust in what might just flow. It's like a, a need to control, mm. right? And listening. Janine, I thought you were going to say the toilet. No. <laughs> I thought you were going to say going to I actually to the got good at the toilet by the end, so I could do that now. But <laughs> yes, I just, yeah, I think even like the way I listen to myself now, it's about trust. I just, I think this trusting of myself, I still have some judgment around what I'm hearing myself say you know it's like I had a friend that went to this outdoor concert last night and I was supposed to go with her and one of the things that's changed for me is I um, I'm more sensitive I like I can because I'm more open and so I can feel things and it's hard for me to be around noise it's hard for me to be around loud people or loud you know large groups and I was starting to feel this resistance to going and I didn't want to feel it. I love outdoor concerts. I love music and dancing with my feet in the grass. And I wanted this so bad, but I could feel it. I could feel my body clamping down around it. And I, I had to be honest, you know, and tell her, I don't think I can go. I don't think, I think it will cost me too much that it'll take me days to recover if I go. And so I didn't go. And, but I had a lot of judgment still of myself, of not being able to rally all those, you know, shoulds in your head of like, you love this. Why don't you just go? You'd probably love it if you went. But it's like, no, my trust in myself is stronger. And I, I may not fully understand why, but I know I wasn't supposed to go, that it was going to cost me some recovery time that I couldn't afford right now. And so I listened and I did that. So that I, that's got to be the most profound thing because it ripples out into all the other areas is that I, I really, even when I don't understand it, even when I don't like it, <laughs> I still trust. What right. Mm -hmm. Making decisions without expectations and just going with, going with the flow, being fluid, right? That's like my word of the year, being fluid. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just don't know, right? You don't know what you don't know and things happen and you can't control them. Right. You couldn't control the outcome of that freaking test, no matter nope. what you did. Nope. You couldn't control whether somebody took your credit card or not. You couldn't control whether they liked the $20 bill mm -hmm. or not. Right. Right. And you just right. had to just surrender. Be fluid. It was surrender. And surrender. Yeah, I yes. Use the analogy of swimming lessons. I don't know if everybody learns this way, but I remember my swimming teacher telling me that if I got tired, I should turn over and float on my back, right? Float on your yeah. back. So mm -hmm. I had this moment where I was like, I am thrashing around in this water, resistant to everything that's happening, mad at the world, right? And I'm exhausting myself and I'm going to drown. I'm going to drown out here. And there literally is no one to save me. There is no one who's going to throw me something to rest, a foam noodle. I don't have anything. So I was like, it's time to turn over and float on your back, Janine turn over and float. And that is complete surrender. When you, I mean, that's belly up vulnerability, right? You just, okay, here it is. If it's a big wave, you're going over it. Like you got nothing. And that I just kind of kept coming back to that. And I think that that's where 
I still will thrash around. I'm still learning the lessons. I'm certainly not like adept at it yet, but I get there faster and I flip over and I rest. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is happening. Let's ride it. Where's it going? What's for me? What am I learning? It's a mindset and you have to get there. You have to like, okay, here comes that, that voice. Okay. 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 Put in the right yeah. mindset. Let me ask you this, Janine. What was it like writing the book? Was it easy? Was it hard? Yes, yes. I know it's channeled. You channeled. <laughs> and so when you had to send that to the manuscript guy, when you sent your manuscript to the guy, I should say, mm-hmm. were you terrified? Yeah. Or were you like, yes, this is yeah, it. It which is, were you? It is so scary. It is so scary to send your work off to someone else. And I sent it to three editors to have them preview and send me a sample of their work so that I could tell if they were the right match for me to work with in terms of, did they understand my voice? And I knew that much, that much was really strong for me. I kept hearing, protect your voice, protect your voice. So I didn't want someone to like fix it. I wanted it to be fully in my voice, but I had to send it to three different editors and like, wait and see if they even wanted to work on the project, how they responded. And it was scary and it was really vulnerable. When I started working with my editor, my publishing advisor had told me it's a lot like dating, that you it's a very vulnerable thing. You have to be able to trust each other. You have to be able to say honest things to someone that you're really just getting to know. So it, it was an exercise in fearing trust and trusting fear while I learned to work with my editor. And that he was exactly the right guy and fully understood and inspired me. I thought he was going to like make corrections and, and make suggestions. And he never did. He just always asked me the right question. And then I'd get off the phone with him and I'd write for hours and I'd be like, Oh, that was exactly the right question. And it just made it so much better. He's like, I don't understand. There's like, sometimes you don't know that there's a backstory to something that you just take for granted and a reader reading it's going to go, where'd this just come from? So he was good at like extracting that from me. So yeah, I can honestly say I have never loved anything as much as I have loved writing this book. Like it is a spectacular experience. It was hard and exhausting. I burned like hundreds of candles. I had to keep stopping and getting in water to calm my central nervous system. I was reliving trauma constantly. I didn't sleep. My body wasn't well. I had a lot of gut issues when I came home. I had to like make massive changes in my diet. And so I had all this stuff going on, but the writing, the writing was like this, it felt like welcome home is what it felt like. It just felt like this piece of me that had been missing. And it was like this opportunity. And I just felt this urgency to it. And it was like, I just, I had to write it. I, I don't know how to put words to it. There, there, this feels really vulnerable to share, but this, uh, there was this point where the urgency felt so strong that I actually wrote what was in essence a will about my book because I started to question if maybe I was going to die because the, the power behind, that was driving me to hurry up and get this on paper felt like maybe I was going to run out of time. It felt that strong. It wasn't like I felt sick like I was oh my God. but it just was like, am I running out of time? And so it just was pushing, pushing it out of me. But I understand it now in hindsight that 
I needed to write it while it was still fresh, while I was still feeling it in my body. It was important that I write from that place. And the people who have read my book so far say, I'm in it with you. It's like I'm right there. And that's what I wanted. You know, it's wow. like I opened the doors wide and said, join me in this experience, you know? So yeah, it just, it was a extremely taxing, draining, but very fulfilling at the same time. It was this really interesting experience. And then I really missed it, really missed it when that whole editing process was done. And then it's just off with other people. Somebody's proofreading it and it's being in layout and, and it's like, oh, it's, and I joked with my editor and told him I was missing it. And he said, yes, it's very much like a child to me. Like you have raised this child and now it's time to send it out into the world to be whatever it's going to be. And I was like, oh, that is, that feels so right. Like the book has wings and it's going to go out there and be whatever it is supposed to be. I've done my part. It's all I can do. And then I laughed. I go, but the empty nest is real. <laughs> so I miss it. I really do. Yeah. Which is a great segue. So my question now to you is, okay. I mean, first of all, congratulations. Amazing. Thank you. So many lessons. I'm excited to read the book. Where do you move from here? What are you doing? How does this work? You have empty nest syndrome. <laughs> well, I'm keeping busy. I mean, I'm still running my business and I'm still writing just for me. I just wrote a new poem. And so I, I just am enjoying this ride. So my media, I hired a PR team and my media kit's going out in just a few days. And then the book launch going live on the 9th of September and then having a launch party on the 10th. And I am going to start working with a recording studio to do the audiobook version of it, which I hope to have out before the end of the book. Oh, year. yes, do Audible. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be on Audible. I love and Audible. And your voice is beautiful. Are you going to yes. be doing it? Are you going to be reading I'm it? I'm going to do the narration Excellent. because I think it's important that you hear my emotion in it. And so I will be doing it. So we'll, we'll hopefully, I don't know what my timing's going to be like, but. And I'm traveling internationally again for the first time in November. Some people ask me if I'm afraid, you know, to travel internationally. I'm like, I am a badass world traveler now. Like literally, I can handle anything. It all happened, right? I didn't lose my passport and I wasn't arrested. But outside of that, pretty much everything happened. My, I mean, there's stuff I just didn't share, but my room door wouldn't lock. I had a strange man come in. I had the government looking for me because they knew I tested positive. I mean, it was all this stuff, right? So, yeah. But it's all in the book. You can't share it on the podcast. It's in the book. Right. This was a teaser. <laughs> well, I mean, I, there's a lot. I can't give you those five hours of Audible they're telling me. So I think it's more than we can fit in a podcast. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited to listen to that. Oh, my gosh. I love Audible. I'm so excited. I do. So it's excited for you. Where are you at mentally now? How are you feeling? Physically, mentally, you there? Are you feeling yourself again? Yes. I feel super happy and grounded. And I just, I feel really good. I'm really, I'm really proud of what I've done. I am really humbled by what I've done. I'm excited to see what it's going to go out there and do. And I, I don't need it to do anything, you know? So it's just like this beautiful place where I can just let it be what it is meant to be and float on my back. <laughs> so 
I'm in a really, really good space. I'm looking forward to, you know, whatever's coming next. I would love to write again, but I don't feel like I can just decide to write. I think writing chooses me. And so I need to wait for that, that pull again. And, but I do, I don't feel well if I'm not writing. So I do still express myself through journaling and through poetry. And I think that there will be something that will pull me to write again. I think I will always identify as a writer now. Yeah. I think you should. That's fantastic. Janine, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. I mean, I read when we first got on, I said, oh, we don't really need to do a pre-interview because we already know your story. I know your story. But then I read you my first intro and it was like nowhere. You're like, well, I kind of need to share that the book isn't what you think it is. And I'm almost glad it isn't because I feel like this stripping of the burqa mm -hmm. and floating up. I mean, that is so powerful. And I think as especially women, but I think people in general, humans on this earth at this time, we are just covered in layers of stuff. And everybody's stuff, there's similarities, but there's a lot of different stuff that we all carry for whatever reason. And we need to get to that where we just kind of let it go and we float up to the surface. And that's when we can be true. And that's when we can get the messages. And that's when we can look up rather than out. Right. And we're not alone. And find our... Yeah, our we're not alone in that. And I think we right. do. We feel alone. So we hide. And that's why I'm like, if more of us would just share the wealthiness and share the vulnerability and just, you know, encourage each other to do this together. Yeah, absolutely. Important work. Yes. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so excited. We're going to share again the success of this book after you've been like on all the talk shows. And I'll say, well, I'm going to have you back on Second Wind to share all this amazing all right. success. And I think that for you, that's, it's not even going to be that for you. I know that you're going to find the success of it when you get that first letter from someone that yes. says, wow, your book changed my life. I know that that's, what's going to resonate with you and make 100%. you feel like it was all mm -hmm. worth it. I mean, it's, it's one thing for reviewers to like my book, but it's another for it to like change someone's life out there. Like that's the power. That's why I wrote this book. That's why I'm willing to be this vulnerable. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you so much. And I'm still waiting for your book of poems. I love talking to you, but I want you to put all your poems, all your book, all your poems need to go in a book. Oh, well, they're all posted on my website right now. So all of my favorite poems that I've written are on my website. So it's just JanineValentine.com. You can go there and there's a whole poetry page. So they're there. I know you want it in a print version, but you can read it online. <laughs> There's several in the book coming out. And yeah, there might be a poetry book someday. I don't know. I'm open to it. We'll see. <laughs> okay, good. Thank All right. you, Wendy. Well, thank you so much, Janine. And until next time, breathe in your second wind. Thank you for listening today. I hope that something you heard made you smile made you think and made you feel. If these incredible stories empowered you, awakened you, or left you feeling inspired, make sure to share with a friend and write us a review on iTunes so we can continue to change lives through this content. 
Make sure you tag us while you're listening on our Facebook group, My Second Wind, or hit the link in the show notes to join the conversation. Until next time, go ahead and breathe in your second wind.